0: Every Lord's Day we come together to worship God and many people have a mistaken notion, unfortunately, that everyone around the world worships the same God even though we may call him by different names. And this is not true. The nature or the character of the God that we worship is different than the gods that others worship. For example, Muslims worship a God That does not guarantee salvation for anyone, even its most devout believers. Additionally, the Muslim God is very distant, and He does not reveal Himself to humanity. And that's not what we have in the God of the Bible. Hindus worship multiple gods that they believe each one has a different ability. But none of the Hindu gods are all-knowing. None of the Hindu gods are omnipresent. And therefore, Hindus never know if the offerings that they make are being received by the gods that they worship. Jehovah's Witnesses worship a God that supposedly revealed to them that the beginning of the end began in 1799. And that Christ returned already, but was invisible in 1874. They have a God that they worship that revealed to them, they believe, that the great and final battle of Armageddon would end in 1914 until it became apparent that human history would continue beyond 1914, at which time the God of the Jehovah's Witnesses said that Armageddon would end shortly after 1914 until... Later, their God revealed that 1925 is clearly more biblical for the approach of Armageddon in 1914, and that Christ's return did not happen in 1874, but it happened invisibly in 1914, and that the people who were old enough to understand the events in 1914 would live to see Armageddon. Until later, of course, God changed his mind and, and said that uh, the babies that were born in 1914 would live to see Armageddon. Until that was changed to mean that in ni- the 1914 generation would end in 1975 until that was changed. To mean that the 1914 generation would end in 1989 And then their beliefs changed once again. That the 1914 generation would extend all the way to 1994 until finally, of course, that was changed to mean that the 1914 generation is made up of all adults, no matter when they were born, obviously, right? And I I should say that that goes without saying that that God, whatever that God is, is clearly not the God of the Bible. Mormons worship a God that they believe, started as a mortal on another planet. He earned his godhood, and then he took on many wives, and he is now our God, they believe. And I would pass along this news that if you, according to their beliefs, are a good enough Mormon, then one day you too will be a God over your own planet and have your own wives I'm not sure what to tell you ladies. (laughs) Again, I would say that that is not what the God of the Bible is. You see, when you and I come to worship God, we're not worshiping any of those false conceptions of God. We are worshiping the true and the living God. We are worshiping the God who reveals himself to humanity in the person of Jesus Christ and in His written word, the Bible. In the Bible, one of the ways that God reveals himself to us, that he shows himself to us, is through his names. And that's what we've been studying so far in this series. And so far, we've discovered that the God of the Bible is the owner and master of all. That the God of the Bible is the most high. God. He is the God who has all power. He is the jealous God, and He reveals Himself very personally as the great I am. And last week we discovered that He is the Lord who provides. Today we're going to discover another facet of who God truly is, of God's character. Through a most unusual story that we read about in Exodus chapter 15, beginning in verse 22 through verse 27. I invite you, if you have access to a Bible, to turn to that passage in Exodus 15, verses 22 through 27. And as you turn to that passage, here's the background to the story. And it's probably a story that you've heard Once or twice before, the Lord told Moses to go back to Egypt and to get all of the Israelites out to free them from their slavery. But little problem. Problem was Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh refused, and so God sent a succession of 10 plagues through Moses to afflict the Egyptians. And finally, as you know, Pharaoh relented, and Moses began leading the Israelites out of Egypt. But then Pharaoh changed his mind. And Pharaoh sent his armies in pursuit of the Israelites, and they were trapped at the coast of the Red Sea. And then the Lord did a most miraculous thing. He divided the waters of the sea, and the Israelites walked along the seabed on dry land with a wall of water on either side of them. And they made it to the other side, and when the Egyptian army began to follow them, the wall of water collapsed and drowned the army. And so God's people, the Israelites, were now safe on the far shore of the sea. We read about that in Exodus 14, and then in Exodus 15, they sang a song. Moses led them in a song describing how God had delivered them from the Egyptians in the first part of Exodus 15. And today I want to show you what happened immediately after the song. If you read this passage, you've probably just sort of skipped through it. It seemed almost unimportant, but it's not. In Exodus chapter 15, here's what we read beginning in verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea... And they went out to the wilderness of Shur. They journeyed for three days in the wilderness without finding water. They came to Marah. But they could not drink the water at Marah because it was bitter. That's why it was named Marah. I'll give you one guess as to what the Hebrew word Marah means. It means bitter, okay? The people grumbled to Moses. What are we going to drink? So he cried out to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a tree. Real quick, the word tree and the word piece of wood really is the same thing in Hebrew. Whether it was a tree, whether it's a piece of wood, you get the idea. The Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the water, and the water became drinkable. The Lord made a statute and an ordinance for them at Marah, and he tested them there. He said, If you will carefully obey the Lord your God, do what is right in His sight, pay attention to His commands, and keep all His statutes, I will not inflict any illnesses on you that I inflicted on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs and seventy date palms, and they camped there by the water. Now, As astute Bible students, I'm sure you already noticed the particular name of God listed in verse 26. He is the Lord who heals you. In Hebrew, it sounds like this, Yahweh Rapha. You may have heard the term Jehovah Rapha before. It's the same type of idea. I'll say Yahweh Rapha. And we'll get to that in just a minute. We'll get to the idea of the Lord who heals us in just a minute. But however, however, before we get there, as astute Bible students, I'm sure you all also know that each one of these names of God that we've encountered in our study of Scripture, it's, they're couched within a particular story, and it is the story that gives us additional depth and beauty to the name and the character of the God that we worship every Lord's day. And in this story, the geography is key. There are three locations named, really four, but Marah is simply located within the wilderness. Okay, So we'll look at these three different locations. Location number one, the Red Sea. This is where the story begins. They just passed through the Red Sea. The Red Sea represents death. The Red Sea is the grave. How do we know? Because if you're at the bottom of the Red Sea, as the song says, you've had a bad day. In fact, it was your last day. Okay? And so the Red Sea represents death, it represents the grave. In ancient Israelite cosmology, and I said, what in the world is cosmology? Is that like makeup and hair and stuff? No, 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 no. Cosmology is not cosmetology. Cosmology is how ancient Israelites or whoever may have viewed the entire world, the heavens, the stars, the moon, the earth, the sea, all of that, both physically and spiritually, how did they understand all of that? In an ancient Israelite cosmology, the seas or the oceans were known to be the realm of the dead. It was the underworld. And so we could get into a lot of details about ancient Israelite cosmology, but just know this that the oceans and the seas represent the realm of the dead. They were a part of where people seemingly go when they die. Because when sailors go into the realm of the dead, they don't come back, right? And so they were seemed to be trapped there. And so understand that about the seas. Now, what just happened in Exodus chapter 14? Israel walked through the realm of the dead and came out safe on the other side. And they sang about this in Exodus 15. And so what actually happened was that the Lord delivered them from the realm of the dead. Again, we read, that Moses led Israel on from the The Red Sea, God had delivered Israel from the grave. Location number two, the wilderness. Verse 22 continues, And they went out to the wilderness of Shur. They journeyed for three days in the wilderness without finding water. They came to Merah, but they could not drink the water at Merah because it was bitter. That's why it was named And so what happened? Israel came out of the realm of the dead, and they entered into the wilderness. The wilderness represents chaos. The wilderness is the place of chaos. There's no abundance in the wilderness. The blessings of life are not found out in the wilderness. There's no great migration of humanity to go live in the wilderness. When I was a kid and I heard about Israel journeying through the wilderness and being lost for 40 years... I didn't know. I thought they were in a great forest. That's what I thought the wilderness was. It seemed like a wilderness to me. And so I thought they were in a great forest and got lost and couldn't turn right or left. They didn't know where they were going. But that's not what the wilderness is. Let me show you a few pictures of the wilderness. Here's what the wilderness looks like. This is an actual picture in very far south Israel, very much represented, a representation of the wilderness And it just doesn't look like a place that you want to spend much time. And you might think, okay, well, that's just one direction. What if you're at the same place and you turn a different direction? You'd see this picture. Well, that's not much better. What if we go a third direction? You get that. Okay? And so the wilderness is not exactly the land flowing with milk and honey, is it? Okay? It's a place of chaos. It's a place of potential death. It's a place that you just don't want to be. And so, in the wilderness, Israel experienced all kinds of threats of chaos there. But one threat in particular, they didn't have good water. And if you're going to have anything, you've got to have some decent water. The water they find is bitter, and so they named that place Marah. Now, for those of you that are Bible students, you might remember the, the story of Ruth. Ruth had a mother-in-law. Her name was Naomi. Naomi lost her only two kids, her only boys. And she was very bitter after that. And she told Ruth, don't call me Ruth. My name is Mara. for the Almighty has made me very bitter. I mean, this was an angry old woman, and she didn't care who knew about it. She was bitter, and she was Bitter at God. Well, fortunately, her story turned out to be good in the end. And in fact, it resulted in the salvation of Gentiles like you and me today. And so it's a great story. You ought to read it sometime in the book of Ruth. But she called herself Marah. Here in verse 24, the people grumbled to Moses, What are we going to drink? So he cried out to the Lord, which is always the right response. And the Lord showed him a tree or a piece of wood. When he threw it into the water, the water became drinkable. And people always want to know, well, how in the world did this happen? You know, how does this miracle work? How do you throw a piece of wood into a large body of water and the water becomes drinkable? Well, here's the answer it's called a miracle. It's beyond human understanding, it's beyond scientific reproduction. The simple truth is, God the Creator has the right to do what he wants with his creation. He can even defy what we would call reasonable expectations of what might happen if you throw a piece of wood into the the water. And you might say, well, I have a real problem with that. I really don't understand that. I really have a hard time believing that. I'd, I'd just tell you to be careful. Because once you start doubting the miracles of God, it's a very short trip to doubting God's own existence as well. Okay, I cannot tell you how the Nile River became blood. I cannot tell you how the axe had floated on the water. I cannot tell you how this bitter water became good. I cannot tell you how Jesus changed the water into wine. All I can tell you is that these things happen and it's a matter of faith whether you believe it or not. And so what happened was was actually a test of their faith and maybe you're believing this or not would might even be a test of your faith. We read in Verse 25, the second part. The Lord made a statute, an ordinance for them at Marah, and he tested them there. The test already happened. The test was that the Lord did not allow them to have good water. So what are they going to do? Here's the nature of the test. The Lord tests his children. What will my people do if I withhold blessings from them? Will they curse me or will they call out to me? I want you to remember that test because the Lord gives us the very same test today. What will you do if the Lord withholds blessings from you? Are you going to call out to them or are you going to curse them? And so here's the command of the Lord that we read in the next verse. He said, If you will carefully obey the Lord your God. Now, let me just stop right there. Keep this on the screen, please. If you carefully obey the Lord your God. Here's how it is literally to be interpreted. If listening, you will listen. Now, that's not good English, is it? If listening, you will listen. But it's real good practicality. I'll put it in terms you can understand. Men, has your wife ever said to you, are you listening to me? And your reply is, yes, I'm listening to you. But what she means is, but do you hear me? There's a difference between listening to the words and hearing her. Isn't there, men? Right? The Lord is saying, if listening, you will listen to me. God wants us to listen carefully to him. He wants us to capture what he's about and what he's saying. It means to obey God in everything Every last detail of God's command is important. Do what is right in His sight, He says in this verse. In other words, don't just do what you think is right. Anyone can do what they think is right. No, no, no. You do what God says is right. Well, what's the difference? Well, your heart might be dirty. Your motives might be impure. What you think is right may very well be wrong. We've got a whole nation of people that think they're doing the right thing, but it's the wrong thing. And that's going to be very easy for us to see. God's heart, however, is perfectly clean. God's motives are perfectly pure. And so when God says to do his will, it is always the best thing. It is always the right thing to do. So we are to do what he says is right. And you might wonder, well, how in the world am I supposed to know what God says? Read it. Read it. God has given us his word. God has not hidden his commands from us. He has revealed his heart. He has revealed himself. He has revealed his commands in his word. All we must do is read and obey. We must read and obey. And so if Israel would obey the Lord and do what is right in his sight, and pay attention to all of his commands, and keep all his statutes, then Israel would not receive the same plagues that the Lord gave to Egypt. For I am the Lord who heals you. Yahweh Rapha. The Lord already healed Israel, of their thirst for fresh water. And he would heal them in the sense of protecting them from the plagues that had the potential of hitting them but had not yet done so. And we're gonna get back to the idea of the Lord healing us in just a minute. But there's one more verse to get to. And in many senses, it is the most important. Verse 27. Then they came to Elim. For there were twelve springs and seventy date palms, and they camped there by the water. Location number three is Elim. The Lord had rescued Israel from the place of the dead at the Red Sea. He had delivered them from the place of chaos in the wilderness and provided for them there. And now, before the Lord meets with them at Mount Sinai, before the Lord brings them into the promised land, he gives them a taste of things to come. It is a precursor of his promise. The word Elim literally is the plural word for God. The word El means God. You put em at the end of any Hebrew word, it means plural. It is the plural word for God. And so this is a clue that this place is very much unlike the wilderness or the Red Sea before it. This place may be the place of deity. Elim is a place, according to this verse, that has 12 springs. And so imagine, if you will, that you were an Israelite, On this incredible journey with Moses, and you come across an oasis, an Edenic oasis with twelve freshwater springs, and you would instantly be reminded, "Hey, I'm a member of one of the twelve tribes of Israel. That my forefather Jacob, the son of Isaac and the son of the grandson of Abraham." He had 12 sons, and I'm a descendant of one of these men that received the promises of God. This cannot be simply a mere coincidence. God is keeping His promise to to my forefathers, you would say. God is building and protecting and providing for and healing a nation and a people for His very own. And then at some point at your stop at Elim, as you and your family and your livestock are enjoying the refreshment of the waters coming from these 12 springs, someone begins to count the palm trees. I've got to imagine that it had to be a kid, right? You know, some kid, I'm bored. Go count the trees, son. You know, something like that. And so someone figures out, hey, there's exactly 70. There's 70 palm trees here. And once you hear that, you remember. You remember hearing the events that are now written to us in Genesis chapter 10. That God had numbered the nations of the world. And that there were 70 in total. And that these nations in the next chapter in Genesis 11 wanted to lift themselves up to the level of God. They wanted to become like God. And so they built the tower of Babel. And because of their arrogance and their disobedience and wanting to become like God, God disinherited them all. And he gave them all over to worship lesser spiritual beings. But for himself, God would choose one man for himself. Just one man. Abram. And he would give this one man numerous descendants of his own, a land of their very own, a nation that would be God's very own. They would be a people for God's own possession. And through this nation of which you were a part, Israel, there would eventually come one man, a Messiah that would bless the entire world, God promised Abram. He would bless the entire world, so much so that the 70 nations that God had disinherited in Genesis chapter 11 would eventually become members of his family once again through faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so when Israel made it to the place of God with the 12 springs and the 70 palm trees. They had been rescued from death. They had survived chaos. And now they had everything they needed. It was a sign that God would use Israel to give the world a Messiah so that all people could find healing and rest in Him too even people living 3,500 years later in a strange little place called Lubbock, Texas. And the same God who brought a measure of healing to Israel in the wilderness and a superabundance of healing to Israel at the paradise garden named Elim, He brings healing to us. Now, you and I have been taught already that we live in a present age that is filled with sickness and sin and death. It is the age of Adam, but as believers we also live in the age of the kingdom of God where we experience healing and eternal life. And if you're a believer, both of these spiritual kingdoms are a reality in your life. We suffer the same ailments that are common to man, And we suffer physical death, don't we? But we also experience the visitation of Yahweh Rapha, the Lord who heals us. And perhaps the suffering that you have experienced has been a test. What will my people do if I withhold blessings from them? Will they curse me? Or will they come to me? And perhaps if we come to him, Yahweh Rapha will grant us the temporary relief that we desire, where the bitter waters of suffering that we've swallowed become instead a spring of refreshment and relief. And yet it may be in the wisdom of the God who loves us so that our healing will be much more perfect and much more permanent A healing that only comes once we are completely free from this kingdom of sin and death. For there's coming a day when our prayers will be fulfilled in totality. The Lord taught us to pray, your kingdom come. And as sure as I'm standing before you right now, the kingdom of our God will, when our Lord returns, come to this world in a way not yet experienced. And it is shortly thereafter that the words of John the Revelator will be fulfilled. Look, he said, God is dwelling with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people's, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more. Because the previous things have passed away.